and welcome everyone to the Proverbs class uh, with Noah Hyde Nations. I'm Doug Taylor. Uh, as we've discussed before, our approach is to look at uh, Proverbs from a, a standpoint of analysis. Uh, we want to ask uh, every question we can think of around a particular verse and try to pull out from the verse the ideas that King Solomon is trying to get across to us uh, when he wrote this. So before we get started, any questions from previous classes or uh, verses that you uh, have been thinking about or anything that you particularly want to make sure that we cover tonight other than to move forward? Okay, and not seeing anyone typing anything, I'll go ahead. Uh, if you do think of something, please feel free to, uh, to jump right in. We are up to Proverbs chapter 10 verse 7. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7. And the text reads, Remember a tzaddik for a blessing, and the name of the wicked shall rot. Remember a tzaddik for a blessing. A tzaddik is a righteous person. So remember a, a tzaddik or a righteous person for a blessing, and the name of the wicked shall rot. Okay, that's the verse. If you've been with this class, as some of you have for a while, you'll know what I'm about to ask, and that is, what are the questions? What questions would we want to ask around that whole verse? Things that aren't clear, don't make sense, we don't understand. What kinds of questions can we ask? Remember a tzaddik for a blessing? And the name of the wicked shall rot. Okay, Eva, good question. Memory of what? You know, when we're when we're saying remember, what are we remembering them for? Oh, very good. Okay, what other questions? Why do we remember the righteous? Yes, very good, Omar. Why would we remember the righteous? What else? What other questions might there be? I'll pause and give you a chance to answer. Okay, Kathleen, because there are a map for us to follow. Okay, but let's hold off on the answers yet. Let's see if we can get all the questions out on the table. Oh, good, Edna, thanks. Glad you're able to hear me. Any other questions we would ask around this? Here are some that, that uh, popped, uh, that, that I had down in my notes. The first was, what's it mean, and you've already identified this, and what's it mean to remember Atzadik for a blessing? I mean, what, what, what are we remembering? What's that about? Also, what does it mean that the name of the wicked shall rot? And you'll notice that it says, remember the Tzadik, but then in the second half, it refers to the name of the wicked. So why one way in one half of the verse and one half, one way in the other half of the verse, and that would lead then to the question of, what does the first half have to do with the second half? Anyway, what, what, 
you know. Um, and is this talking about how we should react to a person after they die? That is, you should remember a tzaddik for a blessing. Or is it an observation of how people actually do look at him? Okay. So those are some, some questions that I had down. Any others that would occur to you? Okay. So, Rabbi Chait, who is the uh, Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Far Rockaway, New York, a brilliant Torah scholar and a great supporter of Noahides, once said that this verse is an observation about human beings. And Omar, we're in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7. Chapter 10, verse 7 of Proverbs. Rabbi Chait said that the verse is an observation about human beings. And what it's saying is that during the lifetime of a righteous person, people are not too close to him. But they're closer to a wicked person. Why? Because the wicked wants to satisfy your emotions and your fantasies. That's what the wicked is all involved in. So people will follow him because he wants to satisfy their fantasies. But a righteous person, the tzaddik, is talking about completely the opposite. His whole life is about the opposite. He will tell you what is real, not what your emotions want to hear. And so he is not necessarily going to be so popular while he's living. But once he dies and is gone, then he is remembered for a blessing, remembered positively. But while he's alive, because he's so focused on on reality and not caught up in the world of fantasy, which is where most people are, he's not going to be a terribly popular person. But then when he's gone, people look back and they realize his greatness kind of after the fact, and then he's remembered for a blessing. Interestingly, Maimonides, the Rambam, uh, was faced some of that during his lifetime. We, we recognize him as one of the greatest uh, of the Torah scholars. But during his lifetime, among certain groups of people, he was not so popular uh, for what he was writing. And as I understand it, it was only after his death that people began to, uh, or people recognized fully uh, his greatness. So, uh, that... Uh, the, the idea here is that it's an observation about uh, human beings. Now, during the wicked's lifetime, uh, they can sometimes be relatively popular. But after they're gone, then people recognize how shallow their life was and their name, sort of their, their posterity or uh, the, the legacy they leave by their name, rots. So people don't remember them, but they will remember uh, the great person. Um, there's an interesting story uh, in, uh, in the uh, 
in the Torah, uh, this would be in the oral Torah, about Rabbi Akiva, who was also a great Torah scholar. And Rabbi Akiva left his wife for 24 years in order to study Torah. Now, interestingly, people tell that story to indicate Rabbi Akiva's greatness. I mean, the guy uh, left uh, left his wife, and she encouraged him to go to go do this, go study Torah. And he left her for uh, 12 years. And if I understand the story correctly, he came back after 12 years to uh, to see her, and like went in the back door and overheard his wife talking to someone who was saying something like, you know, how can you stand it that your husband's been gone for 12 years and uh, studying Torah, and she said something like, you know, would that he would be gone another 12 years uh, if he's involved in the in the greatness of studying Torah. And with that, Rabbi Akiva turned around and went back uh, to uh, uh, to the yeshiva and continued studying. Now, now people tell that story to indicate Rabbi Akiva's greatness, but the question is, how many people today would allow their children, their daughter, to marry someone like that? You know, um, you know. Imagine if you had a daughter, and the uh, the son-in-law says, "Yes, I'm going to marry your daughter, and then I'm going to leave her for 24 years and go away to yeshiva and study." I'm not so certain that there would be a, a great many people who would be terribly thrilled about that idea. See, after he dies, it's really nice to talk about this. My, what a great guy he was. But while we're living, no, no, not my daughter. Uh, so, you see, the tzaddik is contrary to where people are in their everyday desires. But after he dies, they remember him uh, for a blessing. Okay, uh, let me pause. Uh, and Eva, you wrote, is, is it the Lashon Hara of the wicked? I'm not sure. Can you elaborate on your question? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Um, interestingly, I, I would elaborate that the Torah life does not particularly appeal to the emotions. Uh, un, unlike other religions which approach things, I think, w with an eye toward appealing to the emotions, the Torah life is, is rather unappealing to the emotions because the Torah is talking about what's real, uh, reality, and the emotions uh, aren't necessarily a part of that. The Torah recognizes emotions, but the Torah is trying to show us what is real. And that is uh, not necessarily a terribly emotion, emotionally appealing thing. In fact, it can be uh, rather troubling to take some time to accept what reality is. Uh, but that's what the Torah wants us to, uh, wants us to learn um, and to recognize to get our emotions lined up behind our intellect rather than uh, the other way around. Uh, and, and you find, again, when we talk about, uh, you know, a, a tzaddik uh, is not so popular during his lifetime, but the people tend to follow the wicked, uh, take a look at someone like Elvis Presley. Uh, I mean, he gave license to all kinds of desires, and people followed him like crazy when he was alive. And you could compare his following uh, with the following of, say, a true Torah scholar. You know, which person gets a bigger audience? Uh, 
you know, in, in these days we see this in other people. The, the popular characters that promote, uh, you know, very uh, maybe materialistic and emotionally led lifestyles can end up being very, very popular while they're alive. Uh, whereas a, a true Sadiq uh, will likely have a relatively small following. Uh, but after they're gone, people recognize uh, that greatness. Okay, and Eva, you wrote, uh, isn't the, is the, is it the Lashonara of the wicked, their talk, their swearing against others? Are you, if you're asking whether that is gossip, then I would, uh, that certainly can be. Uh, but I'm still not sure if I'm correctly interpreting what your question is. That's not your question. Can you restate your question then? And Kathleen, uh, yeah, human nature to take the easiest path. Um, yes, uh, that certainly can be human nature. We we like the the shortcut. We like the quick approach. Um, most a lot of people who are physically out of shape. If they could take a pill and be looking like Charles Atlas the next day, would probably do it because it's the shortcut. We like shortcuts. Uh, the problem is in Torah there is no shortcut. Uh, and in really living a righteous life there's no shortcut. Uh, we have to you know, go through the learning and go through the process and work on our character and uh, struggle to deal with our emotional issues uh, depending on what they may happen to be. Um, Okay, and Eva, you're saying uh, that, uh, is it the Lashon Hara of the wicked and they're talking, they're swearing and so forth, um, that, they're, that would be the reason we would not remember them. And then, in other words, if I'm understanding you, you're saying we would not remember them because uh, of their evil talk. Yes, I think that's true. Um, the, the verse says, the name of the wicked shall rot, and I think that that comes about because their, the sort of the consequence of their deeds becomes unknown, or sorry, becomes known uh, over time, and especially um, after, they're, uh, after they're dead. People seem to have a, um, uh, have a, uh, a sense for seeing things a little more clearly in retrospect, what you can sometimes call, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, we we always see what we should have done clearly after the fact. Uh, so all the evil things, uh, even that I think you've pointed out that uh, a wicked person does, the consequences of those all become clear uh, after uh, after they're gone, and so I, I can't think of any, you know, wicked person, truly wicked person, that is, most of them are probably not remembered at all, and the really wicked ones, like an Adolf Hitler, are, are remembered with such huge disdain and contempt uh, that, uh, you know, their, their name has essentially rotted and is associated with, you know, kind of all things evil. Uh, so... And Edna, very good point. Everything, everything that is anti-Torah blows away. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, the, the things that aren't real 
tend to uh, to evaporate away and melt away. And the things that are really true and have long-lasting value uh, tend to stand. Uh, and so that tends to happen, I think, after uh, uh, after a person dies and people get a little bit of um, uh, a retrospective sense on it. And, and I mean, you look at uh, even going back to, to Elvis Presley, you know, uh, when you were able now to look at the things that went on in his life and the way he lived his life and how he felt, I mean, the man was in terrible conflict. He just, he, he didn't, he didn't have the fantasy life that everyone who thought that he had a fantasy life uh, had. He, that wasn't his life. He, uh, you know, ended up uh, just in a, in a very difficult situation. And so, so true with many of these people who everyone looks to and thinks, oh, they have this wonderful life, it's great, and you really get in there and, and discover it, and it's, it's a terrible life. Uh, you don't necessarily see all the internal conflicts and the torturous lives that they live until after they're gone, and then the truth starts to come out. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, we can really see what's going on. So, uh, so that's my understanding of what, uh, what this verse is talking about. Uh, and Edna, you've asked, does anyone know what the word fame and rot means in Hebrew? And I cannot answer that question. So I would defer to anyone else on the call if they're familiar with that. Any questions about this verse? This clear? Okay. Very good. Okay, let's move on to chapter 10, verse 8. And chapter 10, verse 8 reads, The wise of heart takes commandments, and a fool with his lips will become weary. The wise of heart takes commandments, and a fool with his lips will become weary. So... What are the questions around that verse? The wise of heart takes commandments, and a fool with his lips will become weary. What questions could we ask? Okay, Omar, what does it mean by weary? Very good. Yeah, when it says the fool with his lips will become weary, well, what does that mean? Very good. That's, a, that's going to be a very important part of understanding this verse. Kathleen, okay, loose lips sink ships, okay. And Edna, uh, yours says, comes to grief. Uh, very good, and we will we'll get to that. The, um, the commentators give different meanings to the word weary. Uh, and so we're going to go, we're going to actually discuss five different meanings uh, of what weary uh, might mean. Uh, could be talks too much, perhaps gossip, okay. Foolish talk is always weary and brings grief. Okay, good, Edna, thank you. And your translation, Eva says, a prating fool. Okay. So the Meiri 
one of the, the great commentators, mentions four different meanings for the word weary. And the Malbum, who is another commentator uh, who has a, uh, uh, a commentary on Proverbs, mentions another one. So let's take the first two of the Eri uh, and talk about those. Uh, the first two uh, interpretations he gives of the word weary are crooked and a stumbling block. So it would be a fool with his lips will become crooked or a fool with his lips will become a stumbling block. And what Rabbi Moskowitz indicated was that these two people, these two types, or these two interpretations, if we can talk about that, these people are thinkers. They delve into the subject, but because of their lack of clarity of ideas, they constantly make mistakes. So they have a, uh, you could say, a superficial, a superficial view of thinking. They haven't been really trained how to think. Uh, so they will make mistakes. And then the Meiri talks about two other uh, types of people who could be referred to by weary. One is a person who makes decisions without thinking. So he's not a thinker. He just speaks with his lips without any thought at all. Just blurts it all out there. And then the fourth one is a person who is in indecision. And there are a couple types of indecisions, and Erie mentions one. Uh, he mentions uh, that indecision comes from the idea that I'm really not a thinker, but I follow authority. And sometimes that person will get confused as to which authority to accept, because authorities might differ. Okay, we talked a little bit about this last week, about the whole idea of uh, do, you take a, do we take an authoritarian approach to life? In other words, do we just believe what other people tell us or take orders from what people uh, tell us without thinking them through? Even up to and including God. Uh, there are, and you've probably heard a lot of people who will say, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. And, and the idea is sort of like if God would just like imprint it on a, on a nice little invitation uh, and send it down to me, I do whatever he asks. doesn't really matter, I'll just do whatever he asks. That's an authoritarian view. It's like, I don't want to think for myself, I just want somebody to tell me what to do and stay out of trouble. Um, so, that's not the Torah approach, but that is a particular kind of um, person, and so that's the fourth one that the Meiri is mentioning. The Malbum mentions another type of indecision or confusion. And that's the person who is a thinker, but his emotions are not in line with the thought. So the confusion comes about because of the conflict that I would have between my ideas and my emotions. And it comes out in my speech. So you can hear the confusion in a person like this because they're confused between the world of ideas and the world of emotions. You can sort of say, in one sense, there are there are um, a couple time a couple kinds of, of uh, thinkers: those that see the ideas clearly and just go right for them and abide by them because their emotions don't get in their way at all. And then there are those people who see clearly what the right thing is to do, but their emotions are really getting in their way uh, and cause them to go through great struggle 
to go down the proper path because the emotions want to drag them over uh, down a, a different path. So we've got about five different types uh, that uh, uh, that you know we were we we can see here. And, and Omar, I see how yeah you noticed. Well, you're going to write the same thing. Very good. That's uh, that's excellent. Um, the difficulty now comes a little bit in the first half of the verse because if it just says a wise person then I could reason that a wise person is someone who tries to undo any of these various types of problems that we outline in the second half but it doesn't say a wise person takes commandments it says the wise of heart takes commandments and that raises the interesting question of what is the difference between the wise and the wise of heart? Any thoughts about that? And Evelyn, you've asked, wouldn't evil inclination have something to do with it? And I will suggest to you that the evil inclination, and, and I think the answer is yes, it would have something to do with it. The evil inclination is the emotions. But the, your emotions doesn't mean your emotions are bad. It's that your emotions give you a clouded and non-realistic view of reality or of what's going on. They will cause you to see things incorrectly. And it's your intellect that can cause you to see things correctly. So that's the battle going on between you know, a person and their evil inclination is the emotions want to sway us in a particular way. And Omar, you suggested wisdom comes from the mind, not the heart, or am I wrong? No, I believe you are correct, depending on how we define the heart. Uh, if we define the heart as the emotions, then yes, wisdom would, uh, would come from the mind. And the idea is not to get rid of the emotions, the idea, I mean, they're an integral part of us. The idea is to get the emotions to support what the mind realizes is true, not to get the mind to support what the emotions want us to do. So I'll suggest to you that there are two types of thinking. There is a thinker where his emotions are not in line with his ideas, but he still lives totally according to his mind. Okay. And then there's another level where his emotions are totally in line with his ideas. And when he sees that an idea is true, his emotions don't interfere with it. Now that is a very, very high development of a wise person. Uh, where when they see an idea clearly, boom, they just go there, their emotions don't get in the way at all. Uh, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but I would guess that most of us uh, are on the side where our emotions do creep in and... Uh, get in the way of, uh, of what our mind is, is trying to do. Now, since both of these people live the life of wisdom, both the wise person and the wise of heart, because I'm saying the wise of heart is one whose, whose emotions don't interfere with his ideas, because his heart gets it, so to speak. Uh, the wise person is one who sees the correct ideas, but his emotions aren't necessarily in line with that. Since they both live 
the life of wisdom, the difference comes in how they relate to the ideas. The wise person sees the idea and its truth to him almost like a command because, because he sees the truth and, and lives in line with the truth. But he always has to be wary that his emotions don't pull him away from it. The wise of heart also sees the truth, but it becomes such a part of him that his emotions line up behind it. So the wise person is like someone who hears the command and feels forced to do it, because there's a part of him that doesn't want to, and the emotions are like an outside force against that person, while the person who is wise of heart, it's like an inner command. There's no opposition at all to it. He just automatically goes there. Okay, and Evelyn, he said, I think wise of heart would be those who can control their emotions. Yeah, we may be seeing exactly the same thing here, that the, the wise of heart has their emotions such that uh, they're not interfering. And the distinction I'm making is uh, the, the thinker has, is able to keep his emotions in control, but the emotions are still trying to pull him away from the truth. Whereas the person who is wise of heart has gotten those emotions to fully line up so that when they see the true idea, it's absolutely true to him all the way kind of through his whole being, and there's no resistance at all to it. Um, so I, I might liken that to, uh, let me give an example. Let's say a person uh, knows they should give charity. But there's a part of them that doesn't really want to because they're thinking, oh, you know, I could use that 10% to go do something else for me. But they realize, no, this is the right thing to do. So they go ahead and they do that, but there's still that tug going on saying, well, you could use that money to go out to dinner or to do something else for you, whatever. But they overpower it and they do the right thing. Compare that or contrast that with the person who sees they should give charity and there's absolutely no resistance because they see that truth so clearly that their emotions line it behind it and they're in fact eager to give charity because they see that as an opportunity to do a mitzvah and something that is part of God's system. So that's, uh, that's kind of the difference. Um, and Omar, you said, truth must come first before my opinion or emotions. Very good, that's true. Uh, we, we need to work on sharpening that part of our mind that is able to discern what is true and what is not true and then get our emotions uh, to line up uh, behind that. And Eva, you've asked what is truth. Uh, I would say truth is what is, uh, what is real uh, in the eyes of uh, Hashem that we know through uh, his Torah and uh, through the faculties that he's given us. Uh, in uh, the first, let's see, first session I think uh, of the Fundamentals of Torah uh, class that I give, we talk about the question of, well, how do we know what's true? Uh, and it's a very good question, Eva, that you ask. Uh, how do we know what's true? Maimonides gives an answer that I find very compelling uh, and have not been able to find anything uh, in any flaw in. Uh, and he basically says there are only three ways that we know what is true. Uh, the first is through 
our five senses. I saw it, I heard it, I touched it, I tasted it, I smelled it. Uh, a lot of things we observe that way. We, we see, we walk outside and we see that uh, the car is red. Uh, we see that the plants are green. We see that a truck just rolled by. Uh, we see that the, the two-year-old across the street uh, playing in a swimming pool is wearing a turquoise bathing suit. Uh, we do that all through our senses. And that is a way that uh, we get you know, virtually all of our information on an original basis. Scientists conduct experiments and then observe what happens. They watch and they get recording devices and, and so forth. So we have our five senses. So that's number one. Uh, second is uh, logical deduction, uh, rational uh, deduction, or a preponderance of evidence. So an example of that would be uh, if I saw Eva uh, at the store uh, yesterday in Everett, Washington, then I know that she could not possibly have been in Houston, Texas at the same moment. Uh, by logical deduction, if she's in one place, she can't be in another place. Uh, if the car is red, it cannot be white. Uh, now, I'm not talking about a two-tone car, but if, if the car is entirely red, then it cannot be white. A, you cannot have uh, A and not A at the same time. Uh, a, a, uh, so logic would tell you those are mutually exclusive. If, if uh, x equals 2, then generally speaking, x can't equal 3 uh, uh, simultaneously. Uh, interestingly, as an aside, this gets to a very fascinating point that is not very politically popular to say these days, uh, but that the Christians think that Jesus is the Messiah, the Jewish people do not. Those two positions are, from a logical standpoint, mutually exclusive. That is, they cannot both be true, which means that one of those groups is wrong. Uh, and I don't want to go into all the whole questions about Jesus and so forth. I'm just making a point about that's how we would use logical or rational analysis to determine something. Now, the preponderance of evidence part of that gets to things that I would know not because I directly observe them or because I can logically prove them, but because there is a preponderance of evidence for them. As an example, uh, not a single one of us observed the United States Civil War, but we know that it occurred. Why? Because there is a preponderance of evidence um, that it occurred. Thousands of people watched it. Uh, many, many books have been written about it. Uh, and so forth. And that's how we know most of history. Uh, because except for the stuff that happened in fairly recent times, none of, us are, none of us observed it directly, but we know it occurred because there is a preponderance of evidence. If we see, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books written by, uh, with thousands of eyewitnesses to the U.S. Civil War, we can be pretty sure uh, that it occurred. If one person writes something and says, you know, I was abducted by aliens and they took me up into their spaceship and I uh, met Bruce Lee and, and Martin Luther King and, you know, uh, and chatted with him and then was beamed back down to the sidewalk, well, that's a different story. Because we don't have a preponderance of evidence there. We have one person's uh, claim that such a thing happened. And interestingly, if you go back and look at the origins of, I believe, every 
world religion, except Judaism, they all rely on the fact that one or one or two or a very tiny handful of people supposedly got some special revelation uh, or enlightenment that allowed them to start their system. Only Torah uh, has a claim that 600,000 men plus all the attendant women and children, which makes a population of uh, 2 million plus, heard God's voice. And I submit to you that it's impossible to fake something like that because you can have conspiracies when you have a very small number of people, but it's impossible to do when you have thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, you can't get everybody to agree to lie about something that way. Uh, so that's the idea of a preponderance of evidence. And the third way that Maimonides indicated was uh, prophecy from a known prophet. And we'd have to go into how you know a prophet's a prophet and so on and so forth, but uh, which is, is beyond what... Uh, uh, what I had intended to go into in this class, but that essentially gives you Maimonides' definition of how we know what's true. It's either five senses, it's logical deduction or rational argument or a preponderance of evidence, or it's prophecy uh, from a known prophet. Okay, uh, Eva, you asked what about beliefs? Uh, one of my mentors made a very interesting comment about beliefs once. He said, belief is a conviction you have concerning something about which you are ignorant. Let me repeat that. A belief is a conviction that you have concerning something about which you are ignorant. And the idea was, or is, that if you have knowledge of something, you don't need belief. And if you have belief about something, then you must not have knowledge about it. So I would submit to you that in and of itself, a belief means nothing. Um, there are lots of people who believe lots of things, and that doesn't make them true. There are people who believe that we never sent astronauts to the moon. There are people who believe that uh, you can gain enlightenment by, I don't know, going up on a mountain and standing on your head for a long time. There are people who believe, I think, that they have voices they've heard from uh, God that tell them to go kill people. There are people who believe all kinds of things, but a belief isn't a proof and it doesn't make something, is not an indicator of what is true. Uh, in fact, once you say, I believe something, whatever the something is, it ends any practical debate about it because it's virtually impossible to uh, debate a belief. And even, even about Torah, uh, the, the belief in Torah, we, we shouldn't have a belief in the sense that, you know, I just believe it. We should be able to show why we know that the Torah is true. And there are proofs uh, of, uh, at least the one I was thinking of, which I alluded to briefly is uh, you can uh, uh, make a, a very compelling proof around uh, the idea that 600,000 men uh, plus women and children heard God's voice uh, and were there for the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Uh, so, uh, thank you Edna. Uh, so, uh, Maimonides I think would say that we have an obligation to explore and to know and to find out the knowledge 
so that uh, we have an understanding of why we have the convictions that we do. Um, other systems, as you're probably familiar with, would tell you that, well, you just need to believe something, and that somehow has an impact. Uh, but the Torah approach is all about, uh, all about knowledge uh, as opposed to uh, uh, belief itself. Um, okay, let me pause here and just look back, make sure I haven't missed any uh, uh, comments. And Kathleen, I don't know if you had a question on your comment when you were, said you were talking about the Hebraic stance. I'm not sure what that is, so if, if you do have a question, if you could key that back in. Um, and okay. So, let's see, did we get to the end here? So the, the verse, kind of going back, is the wise of heart. Oh, and I, I, I wanted to comment, too, about when the verse says, takes commandments, the wise of heart takes commandments. He doesn't just keep them, but he takes them in, uh, because the truth of that becomes a part of him, which is different than just keeping a commandment, because, okay, I guess I have to do this because I'm commanded to do so. Uh, but the uh, that person will just um, that person will will uh, will take them in and the emotions will line up behind the intellect. Okay, any questions about this verse? Okay, no more. Um, Pausing, isn't it the same thing? Not sure what the same thing is to keep and to take. Well, uh, I think the verse is trying to make a distinction. And let me try to make sure I'm explaining it well. If I simply keep a commandment, okay, then I do it because I was told to do so. Somebody told me that I have to give charity, so okay, I go give charity, and I kept the commandment. But to take the commandment, as the wise of heart takes a commandment, the wise of heart sees it so clearly that their emotions now support it. So that commandment becomes a part of them, uh, and not in the sense of I'm having to force myself to do it because someone told me to do so, but because... I see the truth of that, and so now that simply becomes a part of what I do because I see the truth, not because I was given a command that I kind of have to force myself to do, even though I'd really rather not. Does that help? Okay, good. All right, we have about 15 minutes, and... Why don't we see if we can cover off one more verse. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9 reads, He who goes with perfection goes with security, and he who is crooked in his ways will be known. He who goes with perfection goes with security, and he who is crooked in his ways will be known. Any questions you would want to ask on that verse?
Okay, Kathleen, you said that's a given. Okay. Eva, I see that you're writing something. Okay, your sins will find you out. Okay. That gets to the second half, and we'll talk about that. Okay. And mine say, uh, uh, Omar, you're saying your translation says, will be broken. Uh, is that he who is crooked in his ways will be broken? Okay. Um, okay, so let me pose a couple of questions. What does it mean to go with perfection? Uh, what does it mean to go with security? First part says, he who goes with perfection goes with security. In this case, what's perfection and what's security? Uh, and then when it says crooked in his ways, what does that mean? And when it says he will be known, uh, he who is crooked in his ways will be known. And, I, and Omar, I'm going to go with known uh, as opposed to broken. Not sure um, who the translators are. And sometimes there are differing opinions even amongst the commentators about what a particular uh, word means. Um, so let me go with uh, with this one and let's see if that also potentially answers the the question um, and a question is when it says he was crooked and his ways will be known well what's exactly going to be known and then what's the first part have to do with the second part because you would think the second half would read something like he who is crooked goes without security. First part says he goes with perfection, goes with security, so you'd think it says the second half would say he who is crooked goes without security. In other words, to make a nice clean opposite. But instead it says it that he'll be known. So the question is why? So let's look at the first half of the verse. How the one goes with perfection. That is, what he does is he analyzes every situation with wisdom. And so his security is in knowing that he's living in line with God's systems and he's done everything he can. In other words, every situation that comes along in life to him, he analyzes it and figures out rationally what is the best thing to do. And then he takes action based on that. And so he has done everything in his power. He is living in line with God's systems, he's analyzed all the factors, and after that, the results are up to Hashem. He doesn't. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't necessarily have control over every factor because there are always things outside of our control. But he's done everything that is within his control. The second half is saying that the person who lives crookedly—that is, according to his emotions and not according to wisdom—will become known. And. Uh, 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 Eva, you alluded to that when you said your sins will find you out. That is, his crooked ways will become known because he's going to make mistakes that will become obvious to everybody. You know, when you, when you operate according to your emotions and not according to wisdom, by definition, you're going to make mistakes in life. So his crooked ways will become known because of those mistakes. Those mistakes will likely become obvious to people. So if that's the case, we got the first person who's analyzing situations and has the security of knowing he's running in line with God's systems, and the second person 
who's acting according to his emotions and not according to wisdom and is making mistakes and those become known, then the question is, what's the first half have to do with the second half? And in other words, what do these two halves have in common? And I'll suggest to you it's the overall idea of people having security in their lifestyles and that the results will show who has the correct approach. In other words, this is about security in the way that you live your life. There are righteous people who think they're living the right life, and there are wicked people who think they're doing the right thing. I mean, Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. Now, when you ask people if they're living the right life, they always have reasons why they think they are. You know, most people think they're doing what they're doing is the right thing. They may feel insecure, but they don't think they should change what they're doing. Now, when a person questions his life and thinks he should change, that's the type of insecurity that we're talking about in this verse. We're not talking about how a person feels emotionally. Most people will find security in things like money and so and material things, and they'll go for that. And that same is true with an evil person. So the subject here is that, is that people are totally secure in their ways. And, you know, they go with what they think is going to produce security for them. Now, interestingly, according to the Ibn Ezra, the idea of will be known at the end of the verse means that the consequences and results of your lifestyle will show who had the right to be secure. In other words, if you look at the perfected person, he had the right to be secure because generally the perfected person is successful. And even where he isn't successful, the reason why he isn't successful is because of outside circumstances that were beyond his ability to deal with. By contrast, the person who tries to live by his emotions will run into difficulties. The only life that is really secure is living the life of a wise person, and that life is worth being secure about. So Ibn Ezra is saying, we'll know at the end who really had the right to be secure because we'll be able to see in the end what the results of those lives are. So we'll see it at a practical level and we'll see it in terms of a, of a lifestyle level. Okay, so let me pause and check comments here. Um, And Kathleen, you said, go with perfection and accept, and you wrote B-E-S-T-O-L, and I'm not sure what that last word means. It may be an abbreviation, I'm just not picking up on it. Um, uh, <laughs> typing with two fingers, I understand. Uh, and Evelyn, you said, the crooked get caught by others, the police. That's true. Uh, and it could be crooked in the sense of being a criminal. It could be just crooked in terms of of operating their life in ways that are uh, not appropriate uh, and, and acceptable. Uh, so it, it could be something that's legally criminal or something that's just a bad way to operate but is going to uh, produce circumstances. Um, and Omar, great question. Thank you for asking it. Why does it say perfection being that we are not perfect? The way that uh, that was explained to me by uh, uh, 
if I recall Rabbi Moskowitz, was it wasn't referring to perfection in the sense that, you know, you absolutely do everything right all the time and you're perfect. But in the sense that the he who goes with perfection, the, the perfected life is the one of ana analyzing every situation and looking to see what's true, what's going to work, what's reality, uh, and then making decisions along that line. It wasn't some, uh, you know, um, uh, impossible idea of, of a person who never absolutely makes a mistake, but that the idea of perfection is to use your mind in the best way possible. And then, if something doesn't go right and you make a mistake, the righteous person learns from that, so that the next time they run into that situation, they don't do that. But they're continually analyzing situations and analyzing life and trying to uh, make the very best decisions in reality. And that does give them security because they know that they've done everything uh, that they possibly can. Um, uh, Eva, you've asked, what's the difference of having faith and trust? And then you wrote UT, and I'm not sure what the UT means. Um, oh, Kathleen, you wrote uh, Beast of Old, that's the creator. Okay. Uh, okay. Understand. Ah, okay. Uh, oh, I see. I see, Eva. Thank you. I'm putting it together now. What is the difference between having faith and trust? My understanding of what those would mean, I, I don't know that I can make a distinction between the two. Uh, I think the idea of trust is that is when you accept that we do live in a world of practical consequences, a world of systems and a world of the laws of nature that God set up, and accepting that that is the world that I live in and working with that is trusting in the Creator and trusting in the Creator's process. But what He wants us to be doing is analyzing and uh, dealing with situations uh, on a practical and a rational basis with the, the incredible mind that He gave us, capable of analyzing and uh, situations and, and even looking at our own thinking to see if it's flawed. So when I say, well, what does it mean to trust in God, is that I trust that God has created these systems and, and that uh, my trust comes from being a part of that system and that if I do what my part is, which is to uh, you know, analyze life and, and try to live as uh, practically as I can, then I am operating in accordance with uh, what he wants me to do. Uh, okay. Any other questions on that or that verse? Okay, in that case I have about 30 seconds till uh, top of the hour. So we'll wrap it up here. Again, we will have class next week, uh, July 26th. So I hope you all will be able to, uh, to join. And in the meantime, have a great week. If you have any questions, please email me at doug at thinkingdynamics.com and I would be happy to uh, do my best to try to answer those. Uh, and again, have a great week and I will look forward to 
uh, talking to you next week. Thanks so much.